So this morning, I decided to go into my Gmail and to look up all the emails that I got on March 11th, 2020, exactly two years ago today, because I wanted to remind myself of exactly how that strange, scary day played out, like this accidental time capsule in my inbox. First, there was the message from my dentist saying that they were indefinitely postponing my appointments. Then there was a news alert about the World Health Organization officially declaring the coronavirus to be a pandemic. There was a message from our newsroom union telling us to prepare to work from home. But I remember the thing that really did it for me, that really made me feel like the world was falling apart, was the message from the organizer of my book club. It was one line, and it said, Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say book club is canceled. In the two years since that day, so much has happened. There has been this global tragedy of six million people dying. But there's also been private, more ordinary tragedies that are harder to quantify. Losing precious time with family, missing out on a nephew's first years, or a grandparent's last ones. Lately, as restrictions are lifted and people start to return to life as normal, it feels like these two tragedies are in conflict with one another. That if we want to travel for the holidays or attend a wedding or go to a restaurant for a birthday party, that all comes at the expense of the safety of vulnerable people. And that painful push and pull is what I'm thinking about a lot two years in. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 11th. Today, after two years of a pandemic, how so many Americans are starting to move on. And some of the people that moving on leaves behind. I've been covering the pandemic since the very beginning in spring 2020 in the United States. And that's Fennett Nirapil. He covers health for The Post. He spoke with reporter Alahe Izadi, who was guest hosting the show earlier this week. So most recently, I've been covering about this new moment in the pandemic where you have a lot of blue states and blue cities starting to drop those restrictions that have become the hallmark of pandemic life mask mandates, vaccine requirements to enter restaurants and other public places. It's marking this new moment in the pandemic where we're not taking the same kind of aggressive measures to curb transmission of the virus, especially as the Omicron wave recedes. Now policymakers are at a bit of a crossroads where they're deciding, is this a time that we really turn away from these kind of measures that people have been enduring on and off for two years? Or do we keep these tools in our arsenal? Yeah, like there used to be this divide, like you've said, between these red states and these blue states. But now that these blue states are also dropping some of the mandates and adopting a similar approach as some of these red states, bigger picture in the country, what do you think that signals for how the country is treating COVID? Like what we think about this pandemic and whether it's over? It does signal that we're moving to treating the virus more as endemic, even though experts say it's not endemic yet. We are still in the throes of a pandemic and the virus is not at the point where it's like the seasonal flu. But for governors and leaders, you also have to consider your population and your constituents' willingness to follow these mandates and to follow these requirements. 
We did see recent polling that suggests that a lot of Americans are actually still willing to follow restrictions if it means tamping down the spread of the virus. But governors are also wondering how long that's really going to last, especially now that the Omicron wave is receding and you don't have high case rates as much. Let's talk about the experts then. What do leading doctors and health organizations here in the U.S. say about states dropping these measures? Is there a consensus in the scientific community? There rarely is a consensus in the scientific community, particularly when it relates uh, to this pandemic. So you hear different lines of thinking here, uh, particularly at this moment of the pandemic where the Omicron wave was receding, but you were seeing some of these mask mandates getting lifted when cases were still relatively high and classified as high transmission by the CDC. Some worried that, you know, it does make sense to eventually lift these mandates, but probably not right now when we still haven't gotten beyond the worst of the surge yet and when we st- there still is a danger of a resurgence. For some experts and public health officials, the issue here was we're acting a little too soon here. One of the other common sentiments that I hear from public health experts is that we really have to prioritize compliance and the willingness of the public to listen to our rules and to follow our recommendations. And that means that we have to give people an out. We have to like show people that we're not just like keeping these rules in perpetuity for the sake of it or for a power trip and that we're going to impose these rules because of the conditions that we see, because of the metrics. One of the things that I heard from the Philadelphia health commissioner is that we really don't have a right to keep these measures in place more than necessary. So there's always going to be a value of having mask mandates in place. There's always going to be a value of having vaccine uh, mandates in place. It's just a question of like the trade-offs and whether you can justify keeping these measures in place in perpetuity. Yeah. And you went to a few places that recently dropped vaccine and mask mandates in Delaware. You went to Philadelphia. What did you find people were saying there? There's a lot of really measured views about these kind of mandates. So, for example, when I was in Philadelphia, Philadelphia dropped its vaccine requirement to enter restaurants, concerts. I went outside a new edition concert at the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, and I was talking to people as they were coming in. And a lot of the vaccinated people were telling me, you know, we're totally fine with going to places, going to a concert alongside unvaccinated people as long as they're wearing their mask. I went to a bowling alley that kept its uh, vaccine requirement in place, and the folks there were telling me what they care about most is not having to wear masks anymore, and that's what normal means to them. So they feel comfortable with a new normal that going out to places where you don't have to worry about unvaccinated people being around you and you can live basically like you did before the pandemic. You know, it does feel like deja vu in a way. We've been in the position before where things were trending well. Okay, let's drop these mandates. We can now be fully open. And then there's a surge in cases. So what are decision makers saying to that? Like, is is this going to repeat itself? Is this like the same movie that we're watching over again? Or is this moment really different, different even as to the political will to continue mandates? Yeah, so decision makers are trying to like navigate this tricky situation where, you know, a lot of people want to move on from COVID, want to move on from pandemic. But um, cities and states are also facing the prospect of the healthcare systems getting overrun again. 
that's the key here. Like, remember back in 2020 when we were talking about flattening the curve. The whole point of flattening the curve is to prevent a whole bunch of cases hitting at once and hospitals getting overrun with people. Now that we're dealing with more widely transmissible uh, variants, those concerns are even more acute. So we saw hospitals seeing some of the highest census counts ever during the Omicron surge, even though Omicron was a milder variant. A person getting Omicron was less likely to get severely ill, particularly if you're vaccinated. But for hospitals, when a bunch of people are getting sick at once, and even if a smaller proportion of them are getting hospitalized, that's still a lot of people. So this is the backdrop that I'm hearing a lot from health commissioners and health authorities when they're talking about their future plans. So in Philadelphia, they've set specific metrics for bringing back mask mandates and bringing back vaccine requirements to enter public places. You can kind of think about it like living through hurricane season where there's going to be standards where you issue evacuation guidance and you do have to kind of live with that omnipresent threat. If you're in a place like Florida and for the entire country, we have to live with an omnipresent uh, threat of COVID and the potential for new variants to reemerge. And we're trying to figure out that right balance here. You know, so often in these conversations of, oh, it's time to live with COVID or even living with COVID, that's different for different people, right? What about immunocompromised people and also people under five who aren't eligible for the vaccine? Um, yeah, it, all, it seems often like they're treated almost like an afterthought. So what does living with COVID on a societal level mean for those people? Yeah, I'm glad that you bring that point up because you're right. Like the immunocompromised children of the age of five and their families are often kind of left out of this conversation. And there's actually interesting and nuanced uh, perspectives here that I've been hearing from immunocompromised people. So one of the obvious ones that you would expect is people feel much less safe going to the grocery store, going to work when people around them aren't wearing masks, when people around them may or may not be vaccinated. And so some people are kind of hunkering down more. So this actually isn't a return to normal. Uh, what was normal for them was being able to live life, knowing that there were uh, precautions in place that can make them feel safer. I've also heard perspectives from immunocompromised people that, you know, we've always had to navigate a world where there's infectious disease going around. And they do also have tools to protect themselves with highly effective masks like N95s and KN95. So there's actually a segment of immunocompromised people who think, you know, I get it. Like my neighbors, my family, like my community, there is a desire to go back to normal here. And I don't think that society should have to completely restructure to accommodate me when I have um, measures to accommodate myself. Yeah, it seems like one thing out of this pandemic is it's really exposing our values, like what like you said, like what risks are worth taking says something about what we value and what we're willing to risk or what we're willing to compromise on. So does this moment with these blue states now moving in this direction feel materially different to you than past moments? Yeah, I think back in... Um the spring of 2021, we were hearing more rhetoric about how this return to normal is conditional. And we were really hearing warnings about how things might come back if there's a future variant and there's future surges. And there's still some of those warnings in place now. Both Chicago and Philadelphia have said that they're prepared to bring back mask mandates. But at the same time, I'm not hearing as much of that rhetoric 
coming from some blue state governors. And you have Gavin Newsom, for example, who's laid out a plan for treating uh, COVID as endemic. The top health official in California has said explicitly that we're trying to move on from these statewide uh, mandates and any sort of lockdown related policy. And we're trying to move to a point that we handle things more with aggressive testing and getting treatment to people sooner. So there are some changes in strategy and how uh, people are going to be dealing with the future surges. Well, thanks so much for your time, Fennett. Of course, always happy to be on. Fennett Nirapil covers health for The Post. He spoke with reporter Alahe Izadi. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnik. After the break, we talk about some of the people feeling left behind as many of us start moving on from the pandemic. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Lori Bedell has been sick every day since December 4th, 2020. And that's when she first started having COVID symptoms. I started mostly with a cough and sore throat in the beginning. And then it just continued to get worse. I was in bed probably 20 hours a day because I was coughing constantly. I couldn't breathe. I was exhausted and couldn't get out of bed. Lori was hospitalized twice. The treatments would help at first, but then she would get worse again. And by the second hospitalization, I started to have problems indicative of long COVID. I couldn't regulate my body temperature. I would literally just break out into a sweat where I was, it was dripping down my face. My hair was soaked. I couldn't regulate my heart rate. I would be sitting and my heart rate would go to the 180s just for no reason. Before getting COVID, Lori was really active. She was a runner. She went to the gym. She worked as a nursing director for a home health agency, a job that required a lot of multitasking. But after getting COVID, she used up all her paid time off and her sick days. So she had to leave her job. At age 42, she now uses a cane to get around. She has trouble mustering the energy to take a shower, and her brain fog is so bad that it's hard for her to focus on anything. I have no part of the life that I had before COVID. 
On top of all of this, Lori has been really stressed about money because the social safety net that's supposed to help people when they're too sick to work isn't necessarily helping people with long COVID. There's a certain percentage of people who get infected with coronavirus who, after their initial infection phase, stay sick, or else they might even get better for a while and then get sick again. Chris Rowland covers the financial side of healthcare, And recently, he's been doing a lot of reporting on how long COVID has upended people's lives. You know, guesses are, are hard as to how many people are, are being affected this way. But what happens is they still have some COVID-like symptoms, things like shortness of breath, headaches, extreme exhaustion, and all sorts of different kind of symptoms that manifest themselves that make it uh, really disturbing and upsetting for them and makes them you know, realize that they are not getting better. And it can last for a few weeks, it can last for a few months, or in even some cases, it lasts for longer than several months and it can go like even a year or more. I think so many of us have heard these stories basically since the beginning of the pandemic of of how scary it can be for people who have had these longer term symptoms and how doctors are struggling to be able to help them or to be able to explain exactly why people have these long term effects. But there is like this wrinkle about this that you have been reporting on. Can you tell me more about that? So there's a certain number of people who have long COVID who are essentially so sick that they still can't work. So I've been zeroing in on that cohort, trying to figure out what's happening to them. Their lives have been really disrupted. They are feeling so sick that they get exhausted just by going to the grocery store or taking care of their child or going upstairs or cleaning their kitchen. And so much less being able to go into the office. And even if they are asked to be able to work from home on their computers, they have brain fog, they have headaches, they uh, have joint pain and all sorts of strange pains and rashes. And so there's this myriad of things that are keeping them from doing their jobs. So a lot of those people now, what they are doing is they're applying for disability payments mm -hmm. uh, because they are either temporarily disabled or they're long-term disabled. A lot of employers, large employers especially, offer disability benefits for people who uh, are get sick and can't work both temporarily or for the long term. And then there's another category of disability you can apply for from the government. Mm -hmm. uh, it's administered by the Social Security Administration. Uh, and so you can apply for disability through the government as well. The problem is so when a lot of people who are debilitated and too sick to work, when they're applying for disability from the private companies or the government, they're being denied. And and why? I mean, it seems pretty clear that these people's lives have been turned upside down because of COVID. So why wouldn't they be able to qualify for disability? So the thing about long COVID that is somewhat unique is that there aren't good medical tests that provide evidence that um, you have a headache, for example, that won't go away or that you can't sleep or that you have brain fog and you have trouble concentrating and that you can barely read the emails on your computer. So these are things that are the medical establishment is still trying to come to terms with exactly what is happening with these people, why they have these mysterious symptoms, and how do you measure it empirically? There are not great tests for a lot of this stuff. And so disability reviewers look at this and they say, 
well, you say you're sick, but we can't see any evidence, so you're denied. Chris, when we talk about people who are struggling with long COVID, how many people are we talking about? Like, are there numbers of the people in the U.S. who have experienced these symptoms long term? Estimates of who gets long COVID are somewhat all over the map. The best guesses are that there's, say, 20 to 30 percent of people who do get coronavirus infection do have some symptoms that will continue for a month or more. But most of those aren't necessarily debilitating. They may have one symptom or two symptoms, and eventually after three months or so, they might go away. Then there's sort of this core cohort of people who have multiple symptoms and it doesn't get better. And so that might be one or 2% of everyone who gets a coronavirus infection. I've spoken to some doctors who say that there's probably maybe 700,000 to 1.5 million people in the United States with long COVID symptoms that are so severe that they can't work. Chris, so I know that you talk to a lot of people who are experiencing long COVID symptoms for your story, and we heard from one of them already. Um, could, could you tell me more about her? Yeah. So one person I spoke to in Pennsylvania is a great example. Uh, her name's Lori Bedell. She lives outside of Pittsburgh. She was a, a nursing supervisor at a uh, home-based long-term care agency making over $100,000 a year. And in Thanksgiving of 2020, her entire family got sick. Her dad died. He was in his 60s. Her mom had long COVID. She's since gotten better. Lori's long COVID has not gone away. So, you know, in a year and a half, she's been extremely ill and can't work. And she applied for disability from the Social Security Administration, a long process. When I first talked to her last fall, uh, she was still in the process of applying. So I filed in September. I went through a law office because with the cognitive impairment, the process was so overwhelming that I wasn't going to be able to do it by myself. Uh, and then when I spoke to her again recently, she had just received her denial from Social Security saying they decided she was not sick enough to get disability benefits. That basically my symptoms don't warrant disability. That, you know, I have pain, but that that could be managed and, you know, that with the fatigue and the fibromyalgia that, again, it could be managed and I could still do some type of work, even if it wasn't my old work, that I could still be doing something at, you know, at least a few hours a week. What was her reaction when she saw that? I mean, knowing how much she'd been through and how much her life had been affected, getting that message that, like, you just don't qualify for disability, what was that like for her? She was devastated. Uh, she felt horrible. It made her feel like she is caught in between, you know, falling through the, the cracks of the America's safety net. It's just you feel completely hopeless because... You're trying to fight a system that isn't trying to help you at all in any way. She's now appealing. She has a lawyer um, and she's facing a long, long slog of having to produce more medical records. And she is just really struggling mentally. I've lost 14 months of my life on top of losing my dad and being sick and chronically sick for so long. And I can't even find a psych doctor to get in to see.
I'm curious what it's like for doctors who are trying to help these patients get some disability coverage, but are basically ineffective. Well, it is frustrating for many doctors. So the medical community is still trying to come to terms with how to diagnose this, separate out who's disabled, who's going to get better, who's going to be on the longer path of healing. People who are, are on in the ICU and intubated for long periods and have strokes and heart attacks and renal failure and things like that, they do tend to get pretty quickly classified as disabled and their benefits start. It's these people who had more, a milder acute phase of the infection and then lapse into these more prolonged chronic fatigue syndrome, post-viral type of illness that is really tough to classify. And so doctors are quite frustrated when they pull together these huge reports and all these medical records only to find that that patient who they believe is disabled and can't work is getting denied. And, and what do insurance companies have to say about this? So the insurance companies that I've talked to, they won't talk about individual cases, first of all. So they don't comment on the nitty gritty of someone's case and why they were denied and what happened to them. But they'd say in general that they are approving many, many claims, although none of them will tell me what the ratio is of long COVID approvals to denials. So, you know, we don't really have any way of evaluating that in context. Um, they also say that it's really important for people to submit their medical information on a timely basis. There are so many rules and bureaucratic hurdles that people have to go through to uh, meet the letter of the law and the letter of the contracts for these disability uh, insurers that if you're not really on the ball, you can miss a window and you might not have your medical records submitted in time and that can result in denial. Wow. Uh, the other thing they say is that crucially, what people need to understand is that a diagnosis of long COVID is not the same thing as a disability. Hmm. To qualify for disability benefits, you have to prove that you're unable to function in your job, which is a different thing than having a doctor say, oh, this person has long COVID. Hmm. What do you think is the incentive for these insurance companies to be very discerning when it comes to who they allow to qualify for disability? Well, certainly part of it has to do with money. I mean, these are very large corporations that are in the insurance business. And so, you know, opening the floodgates to a lot of claims that are based on um, a new and emerging disorder that's hard to measure with empirical evidence is not something that they're going to rush to do. So there are people who will tell you, you know, they're motivated by profit. Uh, there's lots of critics out there who think that the industry is just uh, slamming the door because they're worried about the bottom line. The system wasn't designed to help people get the benefits. The system is designed to deny as many people as possible because there's not enough money is what it comes down to. I mean, the program doesn't have enough money to handle millions of new applications for, you know, the benefit process. And, you know, it's, it's so infuriating that we're trying to fight a system that is designed to not really help anybody. So that's certainly a possible part of it. You know, they also, they, the corporations, their customers are the employers. The employers, you know, don't want their rates being jacked up because they have a lot of these claims on their books. Hmm. So there are economic incentives to, for the denials. The other story is that it's a new, these are new 
disorders that the medical community is still coming to terms with and is having a hard time even describing the, the level of disability that these people have that will satisfy these insurance examiners. I think in some ways hearing you describe these stories is not that surprising because we know how messed up the insurance industry is. And everyone has stories about insurance not covering things that we feel they're supposed to cover. But it's interesting to see that extend out into this part of the pandemic and this phase of the pandemic where you have so many people who have acute symptoms, but symptoms that according to insurance, are just that, that they're not confident should actually get covered. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, so the American system, the safety net is is based on, you know, you having to prove how sick you are. And, you know, for long haulers, they it's really hard for them to prove that, you know, they don't have good tests to show it. And so what they end up with is this sort of, you know, living in kind of limbo while the medical establishment catches up, while they pull together medical records that, you know, will convince some somebody, some, you know, anonymous person at a, a giant corporation or at a giant government agency that indeed they are as sick as they say they are. So it's a very frustrating. It's a very difficult situation. We've used all of our savings. I cashed out my 401k to try to keep up with expenses. We've had... Um, one of my friends set up a GoFundMe um, and my sister and a friend did um, like a basket auction type of, you know, fundraiser. And we've had help from my mom, mostly Um, my poor widowed mom has been trying to help us get through all of this without my income, like even trying to cover the house payment is overstretched. We'll never be able to recover financially from this um, because I'm living off of retirement savings at this point. So my our retirement plan is gone. I We can't, and honestly being so sick, we can't even think about the future because we have no idea where I'm going to be at that point. Chris, what do you think will happen as more and more people come out of the pandemic with these long COVID symptoms? So for years, there has been this percolating debate about whether people who have chronic fatigue syndrome and post-viral syndromes should be eligible for disability. And it's been a very hard thing for them to prove just like this, like post Lyme and post, you know, different things that, and so what you now suddenly have is a huge influx of people with these identical type syndromes uh, hitting the system. So I think what's gonna happen is that, you know, there's been much more focus on this post COVID and what it is and how it fits in with other post viral syndromes. The NIH is sponsoring uh, large studies the CDC is sponsoring large studies. Uh, there are attempts by many researchers to get their arms around what's happening to these people and how big. And so over time, you will see uh, probably more focused scientific work coming up with ways to prove that what's happening to these people and what they um, are entitled to. But in the short term, I think these people are going to remain frustrated. You know, there's going to be more of them for sure. But at the same time, there does not seem to be any relief insight for a lot of these people. 
Chris, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Chris Rowland covers the healthcare economy for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by our engineer, Sean Carter. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.